0: All right, tonight you are going to need a Bible open. So I'm not putting Bible verses up on the screen. You're going to need a Bible open. Uh, Our passage is all of Revelation 2 and 3, but we're actually going to start in Revelation 1. Uh, We're going to read a few verses from Revelation 1. Some of you were here, not many of you, but some of you were here back in 2014. One of the very first sermon series that I preached. When my family moved to Odessa and came uh, to Emmanuel was a sermon series on Revelation 2 and 3, and we called it Seven. It was a series of seven parts, seven letters to the seven churches, and we looked at each letter in an individual sermon. So tonight, we're looking at all seven collectively, and we're going to move really, really fast. If you want to go back and listen to those, they're all online, and you can have a, a fuller treatment of these letters. One of the things I want to say up front tonight is that this study of these two chapters is going to feel a lot less revelation-y than last week or the coming weeks. The nature of these letters is just a different type of writing. We're still dealing with apocalyptic writing. I'm going to say that on almost every letter. This is apocalypse and this is why it matters. But these are letters, and the communication is a little bit more direct, and so our method of study and understanding things uh, will not be unlike studying some of Paul's letters. Um, Tonight, as we look at these seven churches, I'm going to give you a lot of history. I cut a ton of history out, but I'm going to give you a lot of history, and that's intentional, And it's not to just bore you with historical details or impress you with historical facts. But it's really to help you understand that these letters to these churches are really rooted in history. These are real churches. Real people received them. There were real issues that they were facing individually and as citizens of the Roman Empire. And so there's going to be a lot of history tonight. As we read these letters... The way that we make sense of these letters is going to have a powerful shaping influence on the way that we read the rest of the book of Revelation. And throughout the rest of the study, the next two weeks in the fall and the four weeks in the spring and the four weeks next fall when we wrap up Revelation, I'm going to say to you, we can't read Revelation 1, 2, and 3 a certain way and then move on and get crazy with the way we read the rest of the book. So we're going to be pretty sane tonight, pretty straightforward tonight. We're going to think through these passages. What's the historical context? How do we understand what's going on? How does it apply to our lives? All of those methods of interpretation and study are going to apply throughout the rest of the book. And a lot of people don't do that. And it's not a fair way to study any piece of literature to say, well, I'm going to study the first part of it with certain rules, and then I'm going to go to this other part of it, and I'm going to use completely different rules. This is one book. And so the way that we study it, the way that we understand it, even in these introductory chapters, has a formative influence as we go forward. One last disclaimer. Tonight, we're looking at seven letters to seven churches. There's going to be a, a monotony Okay, you're going to get the feel for how these letters work and we're going to get into about letter three or four and you're going to think, okay, I think I get pretty much the idea. But we're going to keep going through four, five, six, seven. We're going to go through all of them and all of the churches are different. All of the letters are different and there's something that we as a church need to hear in all of these letters. And again, the way that we study these, these letters and these congregations is going to shape the way that we think about the rest of the book of Revelation. So tonight, so that we can get through seven churches, I've given you fewer quotes from commentaries and books and scholars, and more straightforward, let's work through the text and think through uh, what we're presented with. So, to begin, Revelation chapter 1, verse 3 and verse 4 says this, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before His throne. Here's the first thing to remember on a ground-level basis with Revelation 2 and 3. The blessing of this book of Revelation is promised to those who read, it's promised to those who hear, and it's promised to those who keep. That's straight from Revelation 1, and it applies to everything that we're going to read throughout the rest of Revelation. There's a blessing that comes with this book for those who read, who hear, who keep. It is not for those who diagram or predict. Now that's easy in these letters to say we've got to read them, we've got to listen to them, we've got to work through them. But what's true tonight in these letters is true for the rest of the book. There's something for us to read, there's something for us to hear, and there's something for us to keep. These letters are very straightforward in what it is that we're to keep, what we're to do. But what's true tonight of these letters is true of the rest of the book as a whole. Now look at Revelation chapter 1 and look at verse 12. And let's read through the end of chapter 1 just to remember the vision where we left off. Revelation 1.12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, "'And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. "'And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, "'clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. "'The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. "'His eyes were like a flame of fire. "'His feet were like burnished bronze and refined in a furnace.' Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches, okay? One quote from Mike Gorman and then we'll jump in with these letters. The emphasis on keeping the words of the prophecy, we read that in chapter 1, Remind us that this book is not primarily a depiction of events to come as a means of satisfying our curiosity, but is rather a call to first commandment faithfulness. Commandment number one, ten commandments. You will have no other gods before me. This book is a call to be faithful to all of the commands, but especially command number one. Do not put anyone or anything above the one true God. It's a called a conversion and discipleship in light of past, present, and future realities. We read Revelation as words from a prophet, pastor, and ultimately from God in order to be formed and transformed, not merely informed. Many people approach the book of Revelation for information rather than approaching the book of Revelation for transformation. And this vision that we just read of who Jesus is, is about to be brought up seven times in seven letters to seven churches. And the point is not to inform you of information or to satisfy your curiosity about anything, but it's to change you. It's to change me. It's to change our church into the kind of church that Jesus would have it to be. So let's talk about seven letters to seven Churches. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the Apostle Paul wrote a number of letters, but he wrote to seven churches. Rome, Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, Thessalonica. What we see in Revelation 2 and 3 are seven letters sent from Jesus through John Also to seven churches. Seven churches is obviously a symbolic way of writing to all churches. The book of Revelation is apocalypse. In apocalyptic writing, numbers almost always have symbolic value. That doesn't mean that they can't have specific value or literal value, but it certainly means that they almost always have a symbolic value. So what I'm saying to you tonight is that there are really seven churches. He was writing to seven real churches. I'm going to try to make that as real and concrete as possible for you tonight. But you understand there weren't only seven churches in the Roman province of Asia. There were more He could have written to eight. He could have written to only six of them. He chose to write to seven of them. And the fact that he wrote to seven of them is symbolic. Let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about. Numbers in Revelation. I'm going to give you more of this next week, but here's some some stats on numbers in Revelation. The title Christ shows up in the book of Revelation exactly seven times. The name Jesus shows up in the book of Revelation, exactly 14 times, seven times two. The word lamb to describe Jesus Christ shows up in the book of Revelation exactly 28 times, seven times four. You understand the thought that went into this book? You understand the Holy Spirit inspiring these things and John also sitting down to think about these things and saying, I only want to use it seven times because that is a symbolic number for fullness and perfection. Jesus, seven doubled. The Lamb, seven times four. The phrase, peoples, tribes, languages, nations, shows up exactly seven times in the book. All right, I'll give you more examples of this next month, the next time we meet. But all of these numbers are not coincidental. You don't want to go looking for weird stuff in the book of Revelation and pull out all sorts of crazy stuff and math and weird diagrams. But when you look at this, you realize seven is important. Is a biblical number of fullness. It's the pattern that God established in creation that we still live with today. A seven-day week, the fullness of a week. And God is using that number as he inspires John to write these These letters. Now I'm also telling you that seven is not just a symbolic number. Seven real churches. One of the ways that people interpret the book of Revelation is the historical approach. And we talked about it last week. And the historical approach looks at the book and tries to map it out over all of human history. And the historical approach looks at these seven churches and says they're not real churches. They're seven epochs or eras of church history. And we live, this view says, we live in the last one, the Laodicean church age. And they span it out over history and they say age one, Ephesus, age two, age three, age four, all the way down to Laodicea. But that's looking at these numbers only as symbolic, and really it ignores the very, very real historical context that we're going to dig into tonight. So these are seven real churches representing all churches. Okay? The letters that we're about to read are form letters. John does not make up a new way of writing every time he writes a letter to these churches. The structure is pretty well set, and I just want you to see the structure before we get into the letters. First of all, each letter is addressed to an angel. That's kind of weird. book of Revelation is kind of weird. A lot of people look at these letters and they all start with, to the angel of the church of wherever, write this. And you're out there thinking, so we have an angel. What's his name? What does he look like? How many wings does he have? Where does he live? What does he do? And a lot of people get uncomfortable with that. And so some Bible scholars say, these aren't real angels. These are actually pastors. And pastors are just so angelic. He's calling them angels, messengers. It's the same Greek word, but I don't think that's what he's doing. Some people say, angel, that's too weird. Uh, He's really talking about like the ethos of a church, the feeling of a church. And you kind of know what that's like. You visit a different church or you come to our church or you go somewhere else and you're like, it kind of has a vibe, it kind of has a feel, kind of understand it. That's a very modern way of thinking, and it really has nothing to do with the book of Revelation. Angels are prominent in apocalyptic writing. And I can tell you this, everywhere else in the book of Revelation, outside of these letters that you see the word angel, guess what it means? angel like a spiritual being and so I just take it that the most obvious way to understand this is that these churches have an angel and I assume in some sense that every church has an angel and I just be honest with you I don't really know what to do with that I think you could go way off on the deep end and do some really weird stuff with that I don't know that it's best to think about this in terms of a guardian angel, but I do know in the Old Testament there is the idea that God set spiritual beings, you see this in the book of Daniel, He set spiritual beings over nations and gave them certain responsibilities in those nations. And some of those angelic beings, angels or demons, did good things with that responsibility and that authority, and some of them did bad things with that authority and that responsibility. So maybe that's sort of the direction that we're going here. I'm just telling you, I think angel means angel. Second part of the letter. Each letter includes a description of Jesus taken from Revelation 1, which we just read. There's a reason we read the end of Revelation 1, because as Jesus is described in these letters, it all comes from that vision. Next, each letter includes a word of commendation. That's like an attaboy. Hey, you're doing this good. They all have that except the last one, the church in Laodicea. They don't get any attaboy, no pat on the back, no thumbs up, no commendation. Next, each letter includes a word of rebuke, at least five out of seven. Smyrna and Philadelphia do not have a word of rebuke. Each letter includes encouragement and warning, meaning Jesus, speaking through John, says this is what I want you to do, and if you don't do it, there's going to be a consequence. That's consistent throughout the letters, encouragement and warning. Each letter includes a promise to those who conquer, or your translation of the Bible might use the word overcome. That's the most common two words used, conquer or overcome. A promise to those who conquer. Last, each letter ends with a call to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And I'll just quickly point out here, it won't be a major point of emphasis tonight. If you have a red letter Bible, all of these words are red Because it's Jesus talking. And then at the end of every letter, there's a little postscript that says... Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is the way the book of Revelation describes the Trinity. In one moment, you think you're looking at God, and then you realize, oh, no, that's Jesus. In one minute, you think you're listening to Jesus, and then at the end of the letter, you realize, oh, no, that's the Spirit. And throughout this book, those things come together in a unique way so that you see the unity of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit working in redemption. Redemption. Okay, so that's the form letter. Let's talk about the organization of these letters. How are these letters organized? The most obvious answer is geography. And I'll put a map on your notes, and I'll put the map up on the screen just so you can see it. John was on the island of Patmos, and this is basically the mail route. I mean, it's literally the mail route that a Roman carrier would take the mail. So he leaves Patmos, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. It's literally the way the road went. And Eugene Peterson says this, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. The seven cities are located along a Roman postal circuit in what is now modern Turkey. Each can be found on a map. Each has been excavated by archaeologists. I'll show you some pictures as we go tonight. But while the churches are located geographically, they are defined theologically. So the order that they show up here is the male root. They're letters. It's male. But the nature of these churches is a theological definition for each. And that brings us to the second form of organization, which is chiasm. Chiasm is one of the most common forms of biblical poetry. The Hebrews loved this stuff. There are entire books of the Bible that are structured like a chiasm where the first part of the book corresponds to the last and the second to the second to the last and the third to the third of the last until you meet in the middle. So here's the order for these letters. A, B, C, a middle C, then C prime, then B prime, then A prime. And the A's, A and A prime, are very similar. Those are churches that are in serious, serious trouble. Ephesus and Laodicea. You've got B and B prime. These are the two faithful, suffering churches. They look pitiful on the outside, but they're the churches that Jesus says, you're right on track. Keep doing exactly what you're doing. And then in the middle, you have compromising churches, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis. So there's a chiastic structure to these letters. What is the occasion? Meaning, why were these letters written? And there's two answers to that question. These seven churches were faced with two pressing issues. Issue number one persecution, issue number two accommodation. If you have ears to hear what these letters are saying, you understand that those two issues go together and they tie together and they feed off of each other. The temptation was to accommodate, to make gospel compromises so that they might avoid persecution. That's the issue for all of these churches. Listen to me. That's always the issue for the church. To compromise the gospel, to compromise on the truth, so that you don't have to be so abrasive with the world around you, but it's easier to fit in with the world around you. But when the church wants to fit in with the world around it, in any age, certainly in ours, you end up accommodating the truth. You compromise on the truth. And that's the balance that these churches are trying to wrestle with and figure out. We don't want to be persecuted, but we also don't want to compromise and accommodate on the truth. How do we walk that road? Here's the answer, according to these letters. Don't accommodate. Don't compromise. Even if it means you have to be persecuted. And Jesus doesn't promise to save these churches from persecution. He just says, hang on to the truth. And I'll hang on to you, and in the end, it'll all be made right. Even if right now you face persecution. Maybe you just make a side note here of a book that I would recommend. It's a book by Rod Dreher. D-R-E-H-E-R. Rod Dreher. The book is called Live Not by Lies. When you and I think about persecution, we usually think about crazy stories from North Korea or Iran or the Middle East or North Africa or China or Russia or something like that. He talks about that kind of persecution in this book. He calls it hard totalitarianism, where the state cracks down on the Christian faith. But in the book, he also talks about something called soft totalitarianism. You and I, at least now, live in a society that faces the danger of soft totalitarianism. Now, there's inroads being made towards a harder form of totalitarianism in the United States even now. But right now, the pressure that we face is usually not from the government. It's usually from the culture around us. And it's usually not at the point of a gun. That's easy persecution to detect. But it's usually the culture saying, look, you don't want to get canceled. Come on, just go along with this. Everyone, Have you seen the public opinion polls? Do you really want to be the one who's not going to be on board with this? Just come along. Just get on board with this program. But the outcome is the same either way. So a helpful book to think through, um, I think, that would give you another layer of application for these letters and the issues that they're facing. All right, Revelation 2 and 3. Ready to jump in? We've got seven of them to get through. And bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right, let me tell you about Ephesus. Ephesus was a massive cosmopolitan city. It was dominated by idolatry. And the church in Ephesus had an impressive list of pastors. Number one was Paul, number two was Apollos, number three was Timothy, and number four was John. That's a pretty good run. I hate to be number five on that list, and those are your predecessors. Paul, Apollos, Timothy, and John. Uh, Historians look at this ancient city, and they tell us that about 250,000 people lived here. It was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. Rome was first, Antioch was second, Alexandria was third, Ephesus was fourth. It's a big, big, rich city. It was so big and so rich that when a couple named Mark Antony and Cleopatra were looking for a place to settle down, they picked Ephesus. And for a time, they lived in Ephesus. So it was a very, very wealthy city. It's also home to the Temple of Artemis, one of the wonders of the ancient world. And you can go visit the ruins of the temple today. There's not a whole lot in terms of ruins the picture on the top left is the library. picture on the bottom left is the amphitheater. Uh, the picture on the right is Main Street. And then if you go to the next screen, you see the ruins of the Temple of Artemis. And then the third picture here, you see what that temple would have looked like in its heyday. An absolutely glorious building. It was the largest indoor structure in the world at that time. It was a major hub For the worship of Artemis and the sale of idols of Artemis. And you can read about that in the book of Acts, how Paul got into trouble with the idol makers in Ephesus. It was big business. So let's talk about the description of Jesus to the church in Ephesus. Jesus is the one who holds the seven stars and who walks among the seven lampstands. He holds the seven stars, and if you go back to chapter 1, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and he walks among the lampstands. Let me tell you something crazy. This book was written during the reign of a Roman emperor named Tiberius. In the year 83 AD, Tiberius had a son. Emperors did this kind of stuff all the time. They celebrated the birth of his son with a special edition coin minted for trade and sale and use and all that sort of stuff. The coin that they minted, I think I have a picture of it over there on the left. You see it's got Tiberius on the front. And then on the back, there is a baby. It's kind of a funny-looking baby sitting on top of the world. And guess how many stars are around him? Seven stars. And this is a picture that the Roman emperor is divine and to be worshipped, and controls the world, and controls the heavens. And I'm telling you, this is the kind of thing that apocalyptic literature does all the time. John says, yes, he's pulling from the vision in chapter 1, but the vision in chapter 1 is intended to be a slap in the face to Tiberius. To say, oh, you think, you think you're the one ruling the world? You think your son is the one controlling the seven stars? No, 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 no. This is what apocalypse does. You remember, apocalypse is a revealing. It pulls back the curtain on reality and it says it looks like Tiberius and his son are ruling the world, but really they're not. Really, it's Jesus Christ who holds the seven stars in his hand. That's what apocalyptic literature does all the time. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. Commendation. I said Tiberius, I should have said Domitian. My mistake, Domitian. Here's the commendation to Ephesus. The church in Ephesus was patiently enduring, and they were confronting false teachers, and they hated what Jesus hated. So these are good things. Patiently enduring, confronting false teachers, they hated what Jesus hated. Jesus in this letter says, there are people in Ephesus who call themselves apostles and they are not. The situation in the early church is that the foundation of the church was being laid. You actually read about that foundation in the book of Ephesians. The foundation was the apostles and the prophets. Jesus was the cornerstone. And there was all sorts of people in the earliest days of the church claiming to be apostles, claiming to be prophets. And sometimes in the New Testament you read warnings... Where John, or Paul says, don't listen to all the prophets, don't listen to all the spirits, you have to test them. Not everyone who claims to be a prophet is a prophet, not everyone who claims to be an apostle is an apostle. So there's this warning built in about these apostles. Lots of pretenders. John here talks about the Nicolaitans. I would love to tell you who they were. The honest answer is we have absolutely no idea. The closest thing to a guess that you will find in church history is that in Acts chapter 6, one of the original deacons in Jerusalem was Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And there is one little stream of tradition that says Nicholas twisted off at some point and became a false teacher. It's not in the Bible. It's not strongly attested to outside the Bible, but one little stream of thought says maybe one of these rogue deacons, rogue deacons have been causing problems for a lot of years, one of these rogue deacons split off and formed the Nicolaitans and he was a false prophet, a false apostle. Maybe, maybe not. Here's the rebuke for the church in Ephesus. They had abandoned the love they had at first. And this rebuke could refer to love for Jesus, Or love for each other, or love in general. Most Bible scholars pick one of the first two options here. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Some think that they're talking about your love for Jesus has grown cold. That doesn't convince me. It doesn't convince me because these people are standing against false teachers. They're fighting against false teachers. They're not putting up with false teaching. I think what's happened in this church is that their love for each other has grown cold. I think that's what John's referring to. I think that's what Jesus is referring to. Jesus himself, you can write down Matthew 24, 12. This is the apocalyptic discourse of Jesus. Jesus said, Matthew 24, 12 Persecution and tribulation will come, and the love of many will go cold. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here to this church: you're fighting the good fight for the truth, you're being faithful to me, but you're turning on each other. I even think there's clues in the book of Ephesians that that was happening. So that's my my not definitive take, but my strong preference on interpreting this rebuke. Here's the encouragement. In the warning. Jesus said the church needed to repent, and if they didn't, they would lose their lampstand. And when you understand what the lampstand represents, lampstand, according to chapter 1, represents a church. What Jesus is saying is, if you don't repent of this lack of love, I will come and shut you down. I don't need you in Ephesus. I can do things with these other churches. And I will remove your lampstand and you will no longer be a church. That's a pretty serious warning. The promise, those who conquer would gain access to the tree of life in paradise. This is the way Revelation uses the Old Testament. There's no quote at the end of this letter from the book of Genesis. But there's a callback. And if you want to understand what the tree of life was, you've got to go back and understand the Old Testament. You've got to go back and understand the book of Genesis. Revelation does this all the time. You're not going to find any quotes, direct quotes, but you're going to find over and over and over and over again callbacks and allusions to the Old Testament. So there's Ephesus. All right? Number two, Smyrna. Let's read the letter to the church in Smyrna. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. All right, a little bit about Smyrna. Smyrna called itself the first city in Asia. That was its nickname. It was the birthplace of Homer, author of the Iliad and the Odyssey. And it was also the birthplace of Polycarp. If you want to know who Polycarp is, we talked about Polycarp last week. He was a Christian martyr. Smyrna was a center for the imperial cult, and it was home to a temple devoted to Roma. Roma is hard for me to put into American terms, but it's basically the worship of Rome itself the spirit of Rome. It's the ideals of Rome and it's more than just an idea but it's actually worshipped as a god. So Smyrna was a city that teamed up with Rome before Rome became a world superpower. So the origins of this city are ancient before the Roman Empire. It goes back to the Greek Empire. That's why they're called the first city in Asia. They teamed up with Rome and emperor worship was big here. All of these cities would have had temples to the emperor where people would have come and burned incense and uh, offered worship to the Roman emperor. Note the description of Jesus. Jesus is the first and the last who died and what? Came to life. Do you know why this church needs to know that particular truth about Jesus? It's because some of them are about to die and they need to know That if you will be faithful unto death, Jesus who died and came to life will bring you back to life. The comment in the middle of this letter, I always think it's so odd. I imagine this church hearing this read out loud. Where it says, the devil is going to throw some of you into prison and you will have tribulation for ten days. And I think to myself, I wonder how long the pause was between that and the next sentence. Because if it was a long pause, you might have long enough in your head to think, 10 days in jail. I can do it. 10 days. I can do anything for 10 days. 10 days. Week and a half. Then I'm out. The very next sentence. Be faithful unto death. They're not going to get out. Jesus is the first and the last who died and who came to life. Here's the commendation. Church in Smyrna was facing tribulation, poverty, and slander. I'm going to talk about the poverty issue more in a minute when we get to Thyatira. Just lodge in your brain the idea of a trade guild. A trade guild, and we'll come back to that idea. Uh, There was financial cost for following Jesus for these churches. And you remember what apocalypse is? It's a pulling back the curtain. And when you pull back the curtain, you realize what I thought was true is not actually true. And there's a a bit of pulling back the curtain here. I know your tribulation and your poverty. Pull back the curtain. You're really not poor, you're rich. Jesus is going to do the same thing when we get to letter 7 with Laodicea, except it's the opposite direction. He's going to say, you think you're rich? Let me pull back the curtain. You're actually poor. Appearances are not always what they seem to be. And the genre of apocalypse helps us look behind the curtain and realize this looks like a poor church, a suffering church. They look like they're in a bad way. You pull back the curtain and you realize that's exactly who Jesus wants them to be and exactly where he wants them to be. They're actually not poor at all. They're actually rich. John talks about a synagogue of Satan. I don't know what comes into your mind when you hear the phrase synagogue of Satan. I don't think that you should imagine a bunch of Jews in a room bowing down before a picture of the devil in a red suit with a fork and a pitch tail. I think what you should picture is a synagogue of Jews who have turned on these Christians. Okay? In Rome, Judaism was a protected religion. Not all religions were protected, but Judaism was a protected religion. Jews were allowed to do their thing and Rome pretty much left them alone. They didn't pressure them too much. And in the early days of Christianity, Christianity kind of slid under that umbrella. Well, we're, we're, we're Jews. We believe the Old Testament. We're, we're kind of under this umbrella. We're a sect of Judaism. But after a while, the Jews turned on the Christians and said, no, 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 we want nothing to do with you. And that put the Christians out there on an island. And so when John here, when Jesus talks about synagogues of Satan, these are not synagogues worshiping the devil. But these are synagogues who have turned on Christ followers and pushed them into experiences of tribulation and persecution. The rebuke for Smyrna, not there. Church at Smyrna received no rebuke. The encouragement and the warning. Jesus said the church was going to be tested with tribulation and even death. Ten days. I take that to be a symbolic number. It's the book of Revelation. It's Apocalypse. Apocalypse. Ten days. It's not too long. It's defined. It's short. It's limited in duration. There's an end in sight. It's not going to be completely overwhelming in its scope, but it is going to result in death for some of them. Here's the promise. Those who conquer would receive the crown. And the Greek word here is Stephanos or stephanus the crown of life, and they would not be hurt by the second death. So, in the book of Revelation, in the Greek language, you see the word crown a lot, and there's two Greek words behind it. One of those words is Stephanus, and it literally describes like a a crown of leaves that the winner of a race would have placed on his or her head to say, You're the winner of the race, and you get this crown. it's a crown, but it's leaves and it's not really all that valuable. It's not going to last forever. But you get a crown to say, hey, good job. You did great. There's another word called diadema, which is sort of the regal, royal crown that you think about sitting on somebody's head. This is the crown Jesus wears. It's also the crown the beast Wears is he's trying to impersonate Jesus and take the place of Jesus. But the crown here in view for the church in Smyrna is the victor's crown. Okay? I just want you to think about this. This is what apocalypse does. If this church in Smyrna is about to get thrown in prison and then they're going to die, it looks like they just lost. You died How video games work. You die, you lose. That's not how it works when you follow Jesus. What Jesus is saying is when you die, if you're faithful to me, you actually win. Because I'm the one who died and came back to life, which means when you die, being faithful to me, you win. So you get a crown. Because you're not the loser, you're the winner. It's a different way of thinking. It's a pulling back of the curtain. All right, that's Smyrna. Pergamum, chapter 2, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols. All right, let's talk about Pergamum. In Pergamum, they recognize the whole span of deities. Uh, You see this in their coinage. Today, I literally got on Google and typed in Pergamum coins, and you get a result that looks something like this. Page after page after page of coins you can buy, ancient Roman coins from Pergamum, minted in that city, and they have god after god after god after god after goddess after goddess after goddess on those coins and you look at this great variety of coins and you realize this is a city of people who were trying to cover all their bases they were worshipping everyone and anyone zeus athena scelpius dionysus roma the emperor on and on and on and on worshiped all of these deities they had a massive library in Pergamum. This was a learned city. They had massive temples, and I think I've got one shot of what the actual city looks like. Uh, There's an amphitheater. There's their main street. There's one of their main government official buildings. You can go and visit these ruins. So there's all sorts of stuff happening in Pergamum. The reference to Satan's throne is probably a reference to all of this idolatry that was centered in this city. Maybe there's a one particular temple, one particular thing Bible scholars speculate, but there's certainly a lot of of idol worship here. Note the description of Jesus. He is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. That's the description of Jesus offered to this church. What's the commendation? Commendation is that they're holding fast, and they're not denying Jesus even in the face of martyrdom. And this is one of the unique things in all of these letters. An actual martyr is named, and his name is Antipas. He's the only named martyr in all the book of Revelation. And what is Antipas referred to as in this letter? Look at what the text says. Antipas, my faithful Witness. If you go back to Revelation chapter one verse five, we read that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. You connect Revelation one five to Revelation two thirteen, and you understand that's a picture of what a Christian is—somebody who looks just like Jesus. Jesus was faithful to the truth even to death. Antipas is a little Christ, he's a Christian, and he does the same thing that Jesus does. He's faithful to the truth, even to the point of death. So there's an attaboy for Antipas and others who are being faithful. Here's the rebuke. They were tolerating the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Balaam goes back to the book of Numbers, chapter 22. I'll let you Dig through Numbers 22 all the way through Numbers 25 and 31. Balaam was a false teacher who tried to curse the people of God. God stopped him from doing that. And what he ended up doing was seducing them with sex, with Moabite women, into idolatry. He couldn't get them with a direct attack, so he backed them into it through temptation and sexual sin and idolatry. The Bible says Balaam was motivated by greed. He wanted to get paid for taking out the people of Israel. So they were tolerating the teaching of Balaam. Something having to do with greed. Something having to do with sexual immorality. Something having to do with idolatry. And they were tor- uh, tolerating the Nicolaitans. Here's the encouragement. Jesus said he would come and make war with the church if they did not repent. The encouragement and the warning. He will come and make war with them if they don't repent. The promise... Those who conquered would receive hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. It's not surprising that when Balaam was on the scene, the Israelites were eating manna every day. So there's another callback to this same Old Testament passage. You've got to know these stories in the Old Testament if you want to understand this. This idea of hidden manna is the idea that God will feed His people. He'll provide for His people. Guess what happens at the end of the book of Revelation? A buffet dinner. God feeds His people. Just like He fed them in the wilderness, He's going to feed them in the new heavens and the new earth. God's going to provide for His people. A stone, a white stone. What does He mean by a white stone? i give you three options of many. One option is that in the ancient world, when you won an athletic contest, you got one of those nice little laurel crowns, a Stephanus, and you got a white stone with your name on it. So maybe they're saying you won. You get the stone like somebody in a contest. Option number two is sometimes a white stone would be used as an admission ticket. You understand they didn't have laser inkjet. Xerox printers to print tickets off. They didn't have their smartphones. So you had a white stone. That was your ticket into an event, into a game, into something public in nature. A third event uh, or possibility is if you were on a jury and you were voting, you would be given a black stone and a white stone. And if you thought the person was guilty, you would cast a black stone. If you thought they were innocent, you would cast a white stone. I don't know what the white stone is. I don't know if it's because you won You're the victor, you've overcome, you've conquered. I don't know if it's because this is your admission ticket into heaven. I don't know if this is Jesus casting his vote saying, I died for this one so they're innocent. I don't know what it is, but I'd like to get one. And it's got your name on it. A name that only God knows. The Bible's filled with stories about God renaming people. When God renames somebody, he's claiming them. He's taking ownership of them. He's changing their course. And their destiny so these people get a white stone with a new name. All right, Thyatira, chapter 2, verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Each of you according to your works, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, there's a lot of stuff in this letter. This is the longest letter. I told you to hang on to Thyatira and trade guilds, okay? Archaeological evidence tells us that Thyatira was dominated and controlled by trade guilds. A trade guild was basically like a workers' union plus social function plus religious function all tied into one big ball of mess. Every trade guild had a patron deity. And so some of the trade guilds that you see in Thyatira, those who spun wool, those who made linen, dyeing cloth, making clothing, producing leather, Pottery, bakers, bronze, on and on and on it went. Lydia, a seller of purple cloth, was from Thyatira. She probably at one point would have been part of that trade guild. And they all had a patron deity. And basically, you would have a monthly, quarterly, weekly, whenever meeting. And the trade guild would get together and you had a place where you would meet. And they would all get drunk. And they would conduct business that they needed to conduct. They would offer sacrifices to the patron deity because you want that deity to continue to bless your business. And then, most of the time, there would be some form of sexual immorality that would ensue. That's a trade guild. You live in Thyatira. You bake bread. You're in the baker's guild. You become a follower of Jesus, and they expect you to show up Get drunk with everybody. Sleep around with everybody. Offer the sacrifices to that deity. If you don't do it, they kick you out of the trade guild. If they kick you out of the trade guild, nobody buys your bread. If nobody buys your bread, your kids don't eat. So what do you do if you're a Christian? It's easy to sit in this room and say, you just let everyone starve. And you just hold fast. It's easy to say in here, because you can drive right down the road to Market Street. There's lots of bread. There's lots of food. you got money in your pocket. It's easy to say in the abstract. It's hard to figure out what are you going to do in real time. Are you going to go or are you not going to go? Are you going to be a part or are you not going to be a part? Are you going to try to go and just pretend like you're not drinking? Are you just going to go and like cross your fingers behind your back when they offer the sacrifice to the patron deity? This was a hard issue. Uh, Thyatira was the least important of these seven cities. They received the longest letter. I think I might have one picture of Thyatira up here. Do I have one? There you go. You see some of the walkway. Uh, It's close to a modern-day city, so you can Google some of these things. Note the description of Jesus. Jesus is called the Son of God, and he has eyes of fire and feet of bronze, This is the only place in the book of Revelation where Jesus is called the Son of God. It's the only place. only shows up once. Eyes like fire. It comes from Daniel. It means that he sees and he knows, which is exactly what he tells them. I'm the one who searches mind and heart. I know the dilemma you're facing in Thyatira. I know the thoughts running through your mind and your heart. I know the temptation to listen to Jezebel. There was a deity in Thyatira named Helios Pythius, Teremnius Apollo. Roman god Apollo. Helios Pythias Teremnius Apollo. He was the sun god. And he was depicted in most images, statues, paintings as a deity with feet of bronze. Jesus in this... Vision has feet of bronze, eyes like fire. It's pulling back the curtain, okay? Everyone thinks Apollo is this big, powerful, tough God. Let me just pull back the curtain and let me show you who the real God is. It's Jesus, the Son of God, with eyes like fire, who knows your heart, and he has feet like burnished bronze. Make a note out on the side if you want to trace this out. Jesus is the Son of God. That comes from Psalm 2. Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, God's enemies are warned that if they don't kiss the Son and submit to the Son, He will break them into pieces with a rod of iron. And He will certainly rule over the nations. That's directly out of Psalm chapter 2. So we'll come back to that. Here's the commendation. The church at Thyatira was growing in obedience, love, faith, and service. He says to them, this is a positive in verse 19. Your your latter works exceed the first. You're doing good. You're growing. You're maturing. You're progressing. All positive. Here's the rebuke. You're tolerating a false prophetess known as Jezebel. You can trace this out in the Old Testament with Ahab who was married to Jezebel. Here's what Jezebel did in the Old Testament. Jezebel came along in Israel and she said, we should worship Yahweh and Baal and Asherah. I don't want to get rid of Yahweh. He seems pretty useful. Let's keep him around. Let's just diversify. And let's add these other deities in. And she promoted it actively in Israel. Elijah had to confront her. Elijah and the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah. You know that story in 2 Kings 18. So who is this woman Jezebel, this false prophetess in Thyatira? It's probably somebody who's come along in the church and who's looked at people who are facing a real dilemma and who says to them, I don't want you to quit following Jesus. Man, I am all for Jesus. I just think you need to feed your family. So you probably just need to go to the trade guild and you need to have a drink. You need to be there with the, po- the folks and you need to offer the sacrifice and participate. And it's going to be okay. You can do both. Not to pick and choose. It's not either or. It's both and. Let's, let's just do all of it. She's not out and out telling them to turn on Jesus. She's just asking them to compromise. She probably has really good argument. Your kids are hungry. Your mortgage is due. Your business is about to go under. Don't get rid of Jesus. Just go worship Apollo to any of the other deities at these trade guilds. The encouragement and the warning. Jesus said he would throw Jezebel and her followers onto a sickbed, and he called the faithful to hold fast. All right, real quick. When it talks about, verse 22, her adultery, those who commit adultery with her. In the book of Revelation, adultery almost always is a reference to idolatry. Breaking the first commandment. It's almost always what's in view. So you're compromising on this first commandment issue. And this idea of throwing her onto a sickbed doesn't mean I'm going to give her the flu. Or I'm going to give her Whatever. It means I'm going to come in judgment against her. I'm going to destroy her. And those who compromise with her, those who are complicit with her, will also be destroyed. What's the promise? The promise is that those who conquer will rule the nations with Jesus and receive the morning star. Psalm 2. Jesus will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Revelation 2. The people in Thyatira who conquer will share the throne with Jesus, and they will rule the nations, and they will receive the morning star. Out in your notes, just for the sake of time, the morning star, Revelation 22.16. Revelation 22.16. Jesus is the morning star. That's straight out of Revelation 22.16. That's the The best and the biggest and the brightest promise that the gospel has to offer you is that if you're faithful unto death, you get Jesus. You get Him, the Son of God, with eyes like fire and feet like burnished bronze, who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. You get to be with Him. He's the morning star.